Welcome to Writing the Wrong Way. This is a podcast for serious writers who want to develop their skills in artistry and stand out in a crowded industry by taking intelligent, creative risks. I'm your host, Jonathan Ball. I hold a PhD in literature. I'm the author of uh, numerous books, and I take a very analytical approach to art making, emphasizing both efficiency and experimentation. Today I want to talk about failed projects. I think this is an important thing to do because of a variety of reasons. One is just that I talk to people sometimes and they have completed their first you know, like book. So they finally finished a book uh, manuscript, which is a significant accomplishment. Um, even if you know the book is never gets published, it's a significant accomplishment. And I think that's an important thing to understand. I think people don't understand that in a, in a general sense, you know, because you're always thinking if you're serious about being a writer, you're always thinking ahead to um, when the thing is, reaches a reader, you know, when the book is going to get published and read by people. Or if you're writing screenplays, you know, when is the screenplay going to get it made into a movie and so on. And it's important to recognize that most books that are written do not get published. And most screenplays that are written are not made into movies. Uh, and there's no real shame in a project failing also, which is another thing that's important to understand. You know, sometimes a project just is there to teach you something. Sometimes the experience has, you know, value in various ways. Sometimes, you know, you're an artistic success, but maybe, I don't know, let's call it a commercial failure because you don't manage to meet um, your own expectation of, say, getting a thing published. But there's not necessarily a shame in that or a problem with it. And it's a normal thing. I think that's the problem that a lot of people run into. They, they, you know, they, I see a lot of people <clears throat> um, write a book manuscript and they look for a publisher and they send the book out you know, to one or two or three, however many publishers they're going to send it out to. And then they wait. You know, they wait and see, is it any good? Is anyone going to take it? And there's a few problems with that approach. So one is the conflation of the idea that is it any good with is anyone going to publish it? People publish books that are not good. Uh, people don't publish books that are good. Uh, there is, you know, uh, no necessary connection between whether or not the work is published and is good. Usually, uh, a published work is good in the sense that it is of a publishable quality, um, but it doesn't necessarily tell you much more than that you know um so you should you know be joyful when you do manage to publish some work um and you should understand that you know you have therefore created work of a certain quality um but you can't get a big hit about it and you also can't despair if your work isn't getting published you know my first book ex machina uh, my first book went around to publishers for three years three years that book went out and back and it kept getting rejected from publisher after publisher um it was a very experimental strange book you know ex machina is you can it's published now you can go buy it um ex machina is a book that uh is almost a choose your own adventure book of poetic statements and philosophical statements all kind of cycling around the idea the concept um the question how have machines changed what it means to be human? So it's a very esoteric book. It's a very experimental uh, work, structurally speaking. You know, immediately there's just a lot of publishers that aren't going to touch that work. You know, so I didn't 
bother sending it. So right there, you don't even send it to a lot of people. It's you can almost consider it like auto rejections. You know, it's not that you're not technically getting rejected because you're, but you know you would. Um, so you know, all of a sudden. I thought it would be a strength in some ways and I'd get it published faster, weirdly, because I thought, well, only certain people would be interested in it, but they will be interested in it. And I was kind of right and I was also wrong. Um, so, uh, for example, again, three years, I got this book rejected, publisher after publisher. Every single rejection, without uh, exception, praised the book. You know, didn't have a negative thing to say about the book, praised it. And one rejection, but, you know, they just were rejecting it. One rejection actually said, this is after almost three years at this point, uh, the rejection actually said, we love this book. We think it's an amazing book. Um, we are in the business of publishing books that no one else would publish. And we think somebody else would publish this book. You know, therefore, we're not going to publish it. So that was their sort of weird logic. And at that point, I was, you know, sitting there looking at this thinking, I uh, guarantee you people, nobody wants to publish this book, you know. Finally, uh, the press that did publish it, Book Thug, which would have been my first choice. I didn't send it there first because at the time they weren't publishing trade books, really. Like they really didn't publish trade books of poetry. Um, my book was one of their first trade book publications, if not um, their first poetry trade book publication. I don't think it was the first, but it was it was pretty close to you know it, it was it was not too far from being one of their first trade publications. You know, after they had secured some funding and so on, they got a bit more. Uh, they really had started to develop at that period. Um, so, I kind of ended up with the press I can maybe most wanted to be with for that particular book. Um, but it was, you know, a kind of journey of three years to get there. So it was kind of a weird scenario. But before that, so before I published this first book, which comes out uh, 2009 is when uh, this book was published. But I had been writing very seriously for, you know, 10 years at that point. Um, I, mean, I mean, very seriously. I mean, I've been writing very regularly and I had been producing book length manuscripts um, for at least 10 years prior to publishing a single book. Uh, so I want to talk a little bit about that. So, so before X Market came out, again, just to kind of clarify, I had written uh, seven books, and X Market was the eighth book I wrote, book number eight. So, book number eight got published. Now, additionally, at, before that period, I had also written eight uh, book, like eight feature-length films, eight feature-length film scripts. I'd written or co or co-written. So before my first book comes out, uh, I've written eight feature-length scripts, seven books that effectively are failed projects. And I think again, this is important to talk through because I think there's this um, understanding or belief out there that you know if somebody puts out a first book, well, that was maybe the first book they ever wrote, or you know. It was you know one of the first things they ever did. They kind of came out of the gate really strong. I was get I got a lot of praise when I published because I published two, uh, th two books one after the other that got a lot of critical attention, Ex Machina and Clockfire. Um, Ex Machina remains my uh, best-selling book. Um, it's gone into another second printing, if I recall correctly. I think it's only two second printing. It might have been a third, but I think it's only a second. Um, Clockfire. Uh, you know, heavily critically acclaimed book. Um, I did another book uh, shortly thereafter called The Politics of Knives. Um, so within a span of 
within a span of five years, I ended up doing five books. Um, and so, and especially these first two books, you know, you know, I came up very quickly out of the gate. I got a lot of critical acclaim. And by the time my third book came out, people were kind of, you know, really, really, um, in reviews, really kind of talking about me as a person who is kind of, you know, burst on the scene with all this, you know, work. But of course, the truth, as it, I mean, as it always ends up being, is, you know, very different. The truth is, again, I'm just laboring and laboring and laboring. And, you know, failure after failure after failure. And then, you know, finally you get some sort of success. Not that they were massive, you know, big successes. I mean, they're still kind of weird experimental poetry books. Um, but, you know, there is, I think, when somebody does have massive success, there's often that same scenario. They seem like they're bursting on the scene. They seem like an overnight celebrity or whatever it is. Usually if you dig back, there's some sort of... Um, you know, there's exceptions, but this, usually there's all sorts of failed projects that people don't just talk about that much. You know, I, I find like once in a while, somebody will mention in an interview, you know, oh, they wrote this many things or whatever. But I'd like to just, you know, see a little bit more. Like I'm very interested in transparency and kind of, you know, um, showing people a little bit of the process. So I want to just talk about this. <laughs> when I didn't realize it was this much, this incredible amount of work I apparently did. You know, this is like, think about that. That's 15 major failed projects, eight screenplays, feature-length screenplays. So if you were to publish those screenplays, they would be like short books. Um, and then uh, seven uh, like full-length books. Uh, I mean, that's an incredible amount of work. It kind of depresses me. <laughs> but anyway, let's just walk through it. So let's start with the eight actual books that I published, that I wrote before I published my first book. So the first book I wrote, I'm just, I've got a pile here, so you might hear me flipping through the pile. Um, first book I wrote when I was, let's see, I think it was 19, uh, roughly. I don't think there's a date on it. In 1998, I wrote a book called um, Blood. So, uh, this book went nowhere and did nothing, of course. This is basically at, like, my high school writings, like the best of my high school writings. So in 1998, I would have just um, been starting university, first-year university. And I had, you know, like, you know, many young people have, all these big ideas about what a great, you know, significant writer I was going to be. And I had been writing you know, all sorts of stuff. And I ended up, like, printing and producing a little hand-bound volume. I was very into um, uh, Henry Rollins at the time and Black Flag and punk music. And I got into, I was in a grunge band called Mars Has the Advantage. And uh, technically, I, I ended up doing a chapbook press called the Martian Press, which I still kind of have with the Martian Press uh, a little bit. Uh, like I have, I do some projects sometimes under that name. Um, anyway, Blood is the first sort of, you know, it's almost like a, a self publication zine book. I don't remember how many I made, but, uh, you know, I've got I'm holding a cup in my hand and it's just this weird, I don't know, it's the kind of thing you make in high school, <laughs> but, you know, very ambitious. It's a full-length book, though, you know, like, I don't know, there's, uh, it's 117 pages in this volume, and each page has uh, upwards one to two poems on it, so, you know, that's a pretty sizable book, really, that I'd written by that point, and I organized and everything, blood. Of course, it, you know, thank God it never got published. <laughs> it's like bad Henry Rollins imitations of poetry, pretty brutal stuff. Like think of like 
really angry weird now like people's high school poetry you can make a like, big good living as a high school poet now um if you're like writing kind of in, what my daughter calls like inspirational poems um you know kind of instagramming them and whatnot i don't know how to do that stuff but my poems certainly uh would not qualify in the, even in the high school you know i mean a lot of these poems are pretty bad but there's some that you know have some i mean i can look back on them and see like oh this idea was good. This idea was interesting. That line's good. That line was interesting. You can see what I was doing here. I can see like where I came from, uh, how I developed that aspect. I did another book like this a little while later. I forget, I can't find a copy of it. I don't think I have a copy anymore. Um, but another book I did, a book length manuscript, uh, was called Emptying. Um, so this was a little while later. I think probably this would have been uh, I want to say 2002 or so, uh, probably starting my master's degree. Um, I, or, or around that time, my period, maybe a little earlier, I wrote a book called Emptying. So my second book-length manuscript that I completed. Again, just a collection of poems, a loose collection of poems. Um, I forget who I, I'd been influenced by that point by a lot of other people. Like Robert Croach has become a big influence on me. Uh, by that point, Dennis Cooley, uh, you know, some of the professors, Densely, who was a professor of mine at the University of Manitoba, um, a lot of the prairie poets. I kind of had um, moved out of the kind of angry young man phase of poetry and into the uh, unduly influenced by your professor's phase of poetry. You know, so I was doing some good poems, but uh, I mean, some of these poems from Emptying and from Blood and from the next book I wrote. I wrote a book called When I Am Hell. So I do have a copy of that. I actually sent this book to Turnstone Press. I got a rejection letter from Turnstone Press for this. So this is in 2005. Turnstone rejected my book, uh, When I Am Hell and Other Poems, uh, as you know, well they should have. Some of these poems I had published by this point. By this point, 2005, I'm actually publishing poetry you know, relatively regularly. I even have been winning some awards. Uh, you know, I won some awards for some of these poems. Um, I mean, I look back at them, I don't think they're great poems. Some of them are good. Um, but again, I'm kind of just too influenced by the people around me and the you know, kind of mentor figures that I had at the time. So I'd been producing some good poems, but I just, I, I wouldn't say that I was really um, doing good work. But those the first three books, so Blood, Emptying, When I Am Hell. Uh, those are the three books where I'm basically just collecting poems that I've written to that point. At that point, I'd probably written over a thousand poems. Uh, and I'd done a number of, I mean, a number of them have been published. Some of these poems in rewritten versions have actually made the way into later books. So uh, my book that's coming out at the National Gallery, there's a, just a few, like just a handful of the poems from these earlier books um, in, in a heavily revised form have kind of made their way into the National Gallery because some of these are not bad poems and also some of the ideas are really good. Uh, the difference, of course, is that um, I mean, Turnstone is rejecting it, but uh, other people might have published it. If I kept sending it around, it might have been published. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I made the mistake a lot of people make with these three books. Um, one, of sending a book around too early. You could argue that I should have kept sending the books around. But uh, at a certain point, I basically realized um, I'm not interested in these poems anymore. You know, I, this doesn't really represent my interests anymore, who I see myself as as a writer, who I am. Um, they're more of a time capsule than anything, even though some of the work still is pretty good. Uh, and of course, most of it is just, I would not consider good. Again, I hadn't really found my, uh, 
for lack of a better word, my voice yet. Um, but um, I had been doing work. So, you know, three books in by 2005, four years later is when my um, first book is going to actually come out. So, you know, if I hadn't done that work, I wouldn't necessarily be on my way. Now, I wrote way more books than that. Uh, <laughs> sad to say. I co-wrote a book called The Words of This Book. So I'm just looking at this big pile now. Me and Kevin McPherson Eckhoff, who's a really excellent writer, he's done a number of books. Um, I really recommend the work of Kevin McPherson Eckhoff. Um, so Eckhoff and I, uh, McPherson Eckhoff and I got to know each other in Calgary. We were both doing uh, university in Calgary. Uh, we end up writing this book called The Words of the Book. And what The Words of the Book is, is, is the King James Bible auto-summarized. Now, if you have Microsoft Word, uh, there's a function in Microsoft Word uh, called auto-summarize. Now, I can't imagine why anyone would use this function, um, but I found out, uh, I think Christian Book had told me there was, I had been talking about how much I love Moby Dick. One of my favorite novels is the novel Moby Dick. Christian told me about this uh, book called 4% of Moby Dick. Uh, so 4% of Moby Dick is exactly what it sounds like. It's Moby Dick auto-summarized chapter by chapter by a Microsoft Word retaining 4% of the text. So, you know, if the chapter had, I don't know, a thousand words in the original, uh, the auto-summarized function would take, you know, reduce it down to 40 words. What are the 40 most important words uh, this, you know, machine thinks, uh, the software program believes lay in this chapter? So there's this weird kind of business-like... Um, I guess it's a business function. I don't honestly can't fathom why you would summarize things on Microsoft Word, but um, me and Ekoff thought, well, what if we just took the Bible, you know, chapter by chapter, book by book of the Bible, and auto summarized it to 1%. And you wind up with some really beautiful stuff. Uh, so this book actually was really interesting. Uh, you know, on one hand, it becomes this sort of weird metaphor for how people read the Bible. You know, they kind of pick and choose what they want, what they consider important. And they kind of reduce, as if the whole text reduces to that. You get some really beautiful moments. Colossians uh, is reduced to the whole chat book because it's reduced to this uh, three-line poem. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. So that's, you know, effectively the spirit of that book. The machine was right. You know, more or less, that's you know what some of these ideas boil down to. Um, there's some really, you know, some of them kind of bland. Titus just boils down to let no man despise thee. So these weird, like little moment things, momentary uh, poems. Um, I can't find it right now, but the one of my favorite ones is Solomon. We also summarized the whole uh, book again. So we took our book and summarized the whole thing down to 1% as well. Uh, this book was actually uh, accepted for publication. So we had a contract for this book at one point. I, or I don't remember if we had a contract. We had at least a gentleman's agreement uh, with Jay Millar at Book Thug that he was going to publish this book. Uh, he had accepted it to publish the book. And uh, what kind of ended up happening was in the interim between us editing this book and... Um, 
you know, it, it's supposed the publication date. Uh, I had ex Machina accepted, you know, Book Thug also accepted my first book. So they had this first book of Kevin and mine both, you know, this collaborative collaborative book. They accepted that publication. Then they, I sent them another book, uh, which, and they looked at it and they basically Jay was like, you know, I'd rather publish <laughs> this book of yours than this collaborative book that you guys did. And in the same time period, uh, Kevin uh, McPherson Eckhoff, Coach House Books, accepted his first book. And Coach House was like, you know, we kind of would rather publish this first book of Kevin's before your collaborative one with Book Thug comes out. Um, and by that point, we'd also had talked to the editor, and the editor that Jay had gotten, uh, you know, to, to, he was, had an outside editor come in with the book, and the outside editor th was like, you know, this book needs more, way more work than. Um, you can't just artist summarize the whole thing down to one percent. Like you got to do something else in there. You got to add maybe some sort of uh, meta text commentary, you know, uh, like the footnotes in the Bible versions. You got to add some sort of material. He he just felt, and I think rightly so. Me and Kevin decided that he, you know he was right um, that there just should be more going on here. Um, so we basically we all agreed basically to pull the book from publication. Uh, the idea being we would maybe revise it later and uh, eventually publish it. And maybe we will, but Kevin and I both kind of moved on to other projects. And so here's a book. You know, I came very close. You know, I had a book basically more or less about to come out. But then, you know, it gets pulled out. Now, by that point, again, I had had Ex Machina accepted for publication. But after I wrote this book, so in the period between writing this book and having all this stuff happen and my first book coming out, I'm still trying to work on books. Uh, again, I wrote Ex Machina, and then three years later, the book comes out. So uh, I did another book-length work called Inbox. It was a book uh, of spam, uh, basically a spam material. Like I'd get all these, I, I, for a period, I was getting a bunch of really interesting spam emails. Um, so I kind of like started collecting them and copying them in different files, depending on like their tone. There were like four distinct types of spam emails that I was getting. Um, and again, I was just copying them. And uh, I eventually ended up doing a whole manuscript out of this uh, project. The manuscript was called Inbox. Um, it had these four long sections, and it was pretty interesting, uh, but it was entirely composed of found text that I had basically collaged together. So I had done different manipulations to the text, but I would more or less just been selecting things and collaging things. I did a little bit of moving things around. More or less, the text was itself was unchanged by, from what these spam bots had written. Um, and Inbox, I never ended up publishing either. Um, I forget. I'm sure I sent it places. I can't remember offhand, to be honest. But I did kind of break it up into different chapbooks, and I published some of it as chapbooks instead. And the longest section of Inbox, um, I ended up making into a standalone. I, I ended up expanding it out. I had um, in, into this experimental e-novella called uh, "This Ebook Is Otherwise Provided to You As Is." So I self-published that book, you know, some years later. So you can go to my website and if you want and check out that, you know, uh, this ebook is otherwise provided to you as is. Uh, I'm really proud of that particular book, but its or origins was in this inbox box project. The fifth book I wrote that never got published. The sixth book I wrote 
that never got published is a young adult uh, novel uh, called that I co-wrote with uh, my friend Ryan Fitzpatrick. Uh, we decided to enter the three-day novel contest, and we co-wrote this book called In Defense of My Father Who Shot Me With a Crossbow Last Spring. And Ryan came up with that title. Ryan kept the title of the book, and he came up with the first and last lines of the book. And then me and him just in the course of three days uh, crashed together like in my place and just wrote and wrote and wrote this whole... Um, this whole short uh, book length manuscript and it, you know it was pretty funny it turned out pretty good for something you wrote in three days um it didn't win the three day novel contest uh, thankfully <laughs> because then they would have published it um and we just haven't got around to revising it uh and you know developing it further although i was briefly in talks with um uh um with the press about it i probably shouldn't talk too much about that but um Anyway, I'm still hoping uh, me and Ryan kind of have the idea of revising this book and doing something with it, but at this point we haven't. So again, book number six that I wrote and is effectively a failed project in the sense that, you know, it never got published. And then my seventh book was my dissertation for my PhD. I wrote a book called The Crow Murders. I'm holding this massive tome in my hands here. Now the crow murders, uh, I ended up. I mean, it, it's it, it passes my dissertation. You know, I defended it successfully. It did, you know, it's it's a success in that regard. Um, I subsequently decided on various changes I wanted to make with the project, and I ended up getting some grants to help me uh, move towards the kind of final version or vision that I have for the book. The crow murders is going to not really be a print book anymore so much as a online project so you're going to hear more about the crow murders as time goes on if you want to keep updated go to the crow the crow murders.com the crow murders.com um, when you go there uh, you can sign up for my newsletter and i can keep you updated on how the crow murders is going to go but effectively like this is going to become a massive endless online novel project but it's still unpublished. I wouldn't consider it a failure personally because I'm literally in process to, in many ways, this is my most successful project. It's the thing that's made me the most money over the years. Although weirdly, it has never been published. And it's the thing that I think um, fundamentally will in the future be really closely associated with my name. But if you want to get technical about it, it's another book that I wrote that did not get published before my first book came out. So maybe you're in the future and, you know, you've got holding a copy of the Krimmers in your hand, but um, in the past, <laughs> it's book number seven that I write and doesn't go anywhere before I finally get a book published. And I, I wouldn't say that that's typical, writing that many books before you get your first book published, but it's not atypical. You know, it's pretty typical to write a series of books, you know, a number of books before your first one comes out. Um, and if anybody hasn't done that, you know, um, you know, they post the first book they wrote, well, that's great for them, uh, but it's not necessarily the norm. It's not necessarily uh, how you, things are going to go for you. You have to just keep working. Uh, you have to just keep, keep working. Uh, There's no replacement for work. 
you never know when you get finished that book if you're, it's going to go anywhere or do anything. If anyone's going to you know want to publish it, or even if you're going to yourself end up having the ambition or the desire or drive to publish it yourself. So you just have to start a new thing. You know, don't just send it away and wait and wait and wait. Send it away, and while you're waiting, do something else. Um, it may not happen to you the first time or the second time or the third time, but if you keep at it and you keep working, things will happen. Now, in the same period, I was also you know, developing as a screenwriter. And so um, the first real uh, thing that I worked on as a screenwriter was, you know, I mean, I didn't work on it. I just wrote it. Uh, in high school, I wrote a script called Pocket Monkey. So I'm looking at Pocket Monkey here, a comedy about misery and hell. Uh, and the basic premise of Pocket Monkey is that uh, this group of, you know, gang of friends, you know, kind of based loosely on my gang of friends at the time, um, decides that they're going to go um, TV list. They're going to, you know, turn their lives around, stop watching TV, wasting their time, you know, numbing their mind with, you know, television. Television at the time, of course, was total garbage as opposed to now when television is, you know, so great. Um, and they see a symbolic for you know the turning around their lives going to this party there's a particular party they've heard about which is a summer themed party in the middle of winter so they want to go to the summer themed party in the middle of winter and they uh, make a deal with the devil um, not to get them there but the devil you know is a television salesman the devil finds out about their plan to not watch television anymore the devil's very upset by this you know he's, he, he created television for a variety of reasons but um uh, he wants to sell them a new tv they, they sell their tv at the start of the film and he comes uh, he's like immediately tries to sell them a new tv um they make a gamble with the devil that if they don't if they make it to the end of the day without buying a tv from him um, then, you know, they'll take that as evidence that they've turned their life around. But they try to get to this party. Anyway, long story short, uh, you have this sort of weird series of like, you know, sketch comedy-like situations and, you know, as a kind of story develops. So I wrote this script. Uh, when, when I was young, in high school, I watched the movie Clerks. And Clerks by Kevin Smith is, um, I, I mean, it, doesn't, it hasn't held up especially well, I don't think, in the sense that, I don't feel you can watch that movie now. I mean, it's still funny and everything, but I don't think you can watch it now and really understand um, what it was like to watch it at the time it came out. I think there are certain works of art that make an impression on you when you're young because for whatever reason, like you like them, but more importantly, they make it seem possible somehow. You know, and Clerks was a, f a film like that for me. So, you know, I wrote my... Um, unduly influenced by clerk's script and uh uh you know pocket monkey so i did that very young i did it, it was probably i don't know 16 17 at the time um you know so, something along those lines it actually has some funny stuff in it I, I keep meaning to rewrite it and actually make it a real script because it would be sh it would be filmable like it's a possible film to film in the sense that um you know it's very minimal list i wrote it in, in or like with the idea of filming it and although i never did actually pursue it enough to actually make it of course um, it's a very feasible script to make in a certain sense. Like you could theoretically, um, you know, make that script. So, uh, like the budget would be very small. And so I, uh, keep meaning to redo it. Now the next four films that I wrote, or I actually co-wrote, 
uh, with my friend uh, David Navratil. And, and we actually were hired by a guy named Joseph Novak uh, to write a series of four samurai films. So he just hired us, you know, very kind of cheaply, you know, it was all, all very speculative. We just kind of took the job um, to get some experience writing for somebody. It was really a, a really interesting kind of experience. And I would say I learned more than I probably learned doing anything else. So it was really a really, really valuable, instructive um, set of scripts that we worked on. Um, but the, the problem sort of, of course, now that we've all kind of kind of drifted apart and disconnected, I'm not really sure what Joe is doing anymore. Um, I've got these scripts lying around. I don't really have the right to do anything with them. And they actually turned out well enough that I would you know, consider doing something with them. So I can't talk too much about them, but um, basically these four sets of samurai films. The first one was called Son of the Storm, and it had a. Uh, it was set in the time in Japan's history when it was closed to outsiders, and uh, the main character is a, a Portuguese orphan uh, boy who has more or less been you know, raised uh, by the Japanese, um, and so you have kind of a you know, like like a white. Um, samurai in japan sort of scenario it's sort of like actually has various similarities to the last samurai by tom cruise which later which was a later film it came out much you know like after we wrote this which kind of caused a lot of problems the reason that we had this structure was that was just joe's basic idea and it had kind of a certain you know inherent interest and conflict uh, to have that character um in this milieu uh this script actually got attracted the attention of Kerry Hiroyuki Tagawa, who's best known for probably in the West for Mortal Kombat, uh, and has been in a number of other Hollywood films. Um, you know, Kerry Hiroyuki Tagawa is a really great actor, so you look him up on IMDb if you don't know him. I'll, I'll put the link to this in the sh to his stuff in the show notes. Um, so the show notes for this, by the way, are going to be at JonathanBall.com/six. Um, Anyway, Hiroki Tagawa became very interested in the script for a period and was attached to um, be in it. Uh, but the problem, of course, uh, became that the lead character, like his main interest was an, not is to be a lead character. Um, but the lead character, you know, the whole script concept revolves around the fact that the lead character is not Japanese. So we actually ended up writing a different script for Kerry Hiroki Tagawa um, called Way of the Samurai. So we wrote a second script which had a lot of the same uh, story elements, uh, but kind of revolved more around a different character, you know, this Japanese figure. Um, so kind of an old Japanese uh, samurai film. This, again, this is set in the historical past. So uh, we wrote that. Uh, Tagawa was attached after a while. Some other people were attached. Uh, if I remember right, the guy who wrote Mystery Alaska was attached, but I, I can't quite recall precisely. I didn't ever meet him. Um, but Joe is, you know, kind of again in charge. Joe owned these things, and so he was out there, you know, doing development. Uh, at a certain point, it became basically clear that nobody was going to make a period piece, uh, and so uh, in the interest of kind of modernizing the concept a little bit, Joe was really invested. He, you know, he, Joe was a big fan of Lone Wolf and Cub, and uh, that was a real touchstone for some of the things that we were kind of interested in the script. Um, so we ended up kind of modernizing a bit. We ended up doing a script called Yakuza. Uh, so it jumped back and forth in time. I've, I found myself doing a number of stories like this now, 
it's almost a weird specialty. It's developing into a weird little specialty, but um, we're doing these parallel stories. So, you know, a story in the present and a story set in the historical past that don't have real plot connections, but kind of are mirroring each other in various you know ways or thema and thematically speaking. So you have these two disconnected narratives that actually kind of mirror and connect on a thematic level. Uh, so that was what was going on with Yakuza. You had this you know modern day Yakuza figure uh, and this you know ancient you know, samurai figure. Um, these two different storylines advancing at the same time. So that way Joe could have I'm throwing the scripts in a pile over here, so that's how that noise is. Um, that's what that's the way that Joe could have his um historical samurai stuff and also get you know some kind of modern uh yakuza type uh things happening uh eventually again kara hero gitagawa was theoretically going to be in that script um now eventually um tagawa you know kind of moved on i mean he was never really heavily involved in the sense that but he was attached to it we had a memorandum a deal of 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 a I forget the precise term all of a sudden, but a deal memo, basically, uh, at one point that he had signed. Um, but, you know, he, he, he we, these scripts weren't getting made. Um, so we ended up doing a fourth script, finally, for Joe. Uh, he had the idea, again, that he would, um, you know, just, just move right out of the whole samurai thing, move way out of the historical past let's get modern keep some of the same elements but um you know kind of move back to a sort of white guy uh character if only because uh that way um you know joe would have an easier time casting it in winnipeg um and he had the idea at this point that he might you know himself uh, end up playing one of the characters so we wrote a final script for Joe called Samurai on 47th, which had no uh, actual samurai stuff happening. Just sort of this figure who had almost a weird delusion um, uh, you know, of being a samurai. You know, he, was, he was a very strung out uh, figure who had been kind of destroyed by this. Um, it has a great opening scene where, um, this was Joe's idea, but we did a good job writing it, I think. I think it was Joe's idea, it might have been uh, our idea but there's a great opening scene where um there's like a digital video camera kind of fires on and this, this guy is filming his wife uh in a restaurant so this is of course before like cell phones right you know the idea like he's filming his wife before uh, in uh with this new camera they've gotten um or i guess he's with his cell phone uh, and i'm just looking at the script here and he, he's filming her because he's going to propose to her so he wants to get her reaction you know you know on video anyway as this is happening in the background we see uh you know some people in the background basically what ends up happening in the script is like this gang hit takes place in the restaurant uh so it kind of like he captures like a, the sort of beginning of it on the in the background um but as kind of accidental casualty um his wife gets murdered you know, on film uh, as he's about to propose her. So it's a bit, you know, melodramatic, but it, you know, it works. Um, it works at the start of a script. This is a weird writing tip. You can have that kind of thing would be like a bizarre coincidence, and it's you know kind of an overtop crazy coincidence. 
the moment you propose to your you know girlfriend she's going to be murdered in a gangland hit by accident you know it's just there's all le- these levels of unlikely coincidence there but you know what you can get away with that at the very start yeah, the audience will let you get away uh, with a bizarre unlikely ridiculous coincidence as long as it's at the very start of a story if it's later in the story the audience will rebel against it but if it's a start of the story the audience will accept it I'm not sure why that is exactly. It may simply have to do with the basic convention that we understand um, there's something special about the story that's about to be told. Um, Whatever the initiating incidents are, um, we'll kind of allow for some uh, extra suspension of disbelief just to sort of get us into the situation of the story. Um, So you can get away with that kind of stuff at the very start of your story. You can't get away with it later. People will just freak out and rebel and turn against you. Joe actually, by the way, made, you know, he eventually made one of these things into a film, sort of. So what he ended up doing eventually was taking our first script that we wrote, um, Son of the Storm, and he re- he wrote a new script himself um, where he transposed a lot of the story into a Western. Um, and then he, so he wrote that script we didn't really have a lot of connection to Joe at that point. Um, but he was still doing stuff um, at that time. So we have a weird, and he actually produced the film. Like he managed to, he basically just funded it himself off his credit cards or whatever. I think his total budget was like $5,000. He made a whole feature film for like $5,000. But then like, I don't really know what happened to it, to be perfectly honest. Like I ended up seeing it. I managed to actually get a chance to see it when it came out in the theater but uh, we never actually got copies of it. And I you know, keep, every once in a while, I try to get a hold of Joe and bug him for a copy of this film, but you know, I haven't still not got a copy of this film that I have a weird credit on, you know, so, um, and again, it was, I don't know, it never really got a release beyond that as far as I can tell. I've never been able to find it in any way, shape or form. The screenplay for that film is based on another screenplay for a different film that was never made. And so my credit is kind of this weird, you know, based on, uh, the actual specific thing would be like screenplay by Joe Novak based on a screenplay by these three guys, which was based on a story by Joe Novak. So the next script I worked, the fifth script that I wrote, or sorry, sixth script that I wrote was The Sandman, uh, which I wrote for my master's thesis. The Sandman is a adaptation of the E.T. Hoffman short story, The Sandman, which was famously discussed by Sigmund Freud in his essay on the uncanny. Um, and, um, so I wrote this uh, screenplay adaptation of this. I took this in a, uh, I took a class with George Tolls at the University of Manitoba. He's a really brilliant professor, and he himself is a really brilliant screenwriter. He writes and co-writes for uh, Guy Madden, um, the filmmaker Guy Madden, and this has done you know, amazing, uh, amazing films. Um, so uh, I took a class with Joe where um we took this story called the sandman by et hoffman which i never read before I, though i'd heard of it again i'd read this freud essay and just never thought to search that story out for some reason and i fell in love with the story it was just amazing and it really sparked my imagination in various ways so i ended up writing a screenplay adaptation of it as a master's thesis with george uh tolls as my supervisor I, it was the first or it was i think it was the second screenplay that you know, they'd ever accepted as a master's thesis the first, uh, it was the second or the first. I f- I'm not sure because there was another guy, Mark Ewell, doing one 
around the same time. I think if I remember right, he finished just before I did. Um, I think he was also working George. Um, but the Sandman is a script that I keep uh, meaning to return to. So it's a failed project in the sense that, you know, again, it never really went anywhere. Um, I keep feeling like I want to return to it. Um, I actually want to develop it into a graphic novel or into two graphic novels. Again, it's got this kind of past, present story split structure. Looking back at the script, I don't feel it works as that structure isn't working in this particular film because um, instead of paralleling and jumping back and forth, I'm doing one, then the other. But imagine like you're watching Haley Joe Osment or something, or like Macaulay Culkin, you know, some child actor in a, um, uh, you know, a child role. And then halfway through the movie, you jump ahead in time. It's the same character, but now it's a different actor entirely. Now Tom Cruise is, you know, the actor. So uh, that kind of structure is not <clears throat> really sustainable in, in a film, particularly. At least uh, it's strange enough to, in a film, that it's going to draw undue attention to itself as a structural element. And so it's kind of going to start diffusing the actual horror, you know, or other things. Like this is a horror film uh, script. So in many ways, it's more of a novel structure. Uh, than a film structure and so I feel more and more as I think about and look at the script that um, I still love it and I still really want to develop this idea uh, but um, I think it worked better as a graphic novel and actually I was talking to um, uh, Gregory Kamichik about this you know who, who really brilliant graphic novel uh, ist himself and um, he, he was kind of pushing me on the idea of like, why don't you just make it two graphic novels, you know, do a past one, then do kind of a sequel sort of one. And that way you get to develop each, you know, part of the story more fully. And the more I think, initially I dismissed that idea. I was like, Greg, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> but the more I think about it, the more I think he's right. And, you know, that's what I'm going to have to do. So that's a project on the list of projects to do. Um, that was a significant, so I finished that script in 2005. That was a significant moment for me uh, because the, um, it was the first thing I'd really finished that was significant size. I mean, that, I mean, I'd written, like I say, five other scripts before this, and I'd written a series of book manuscripts by this point. But this is the first thing I really finished where I felt, oh, this is kind of like me. Like, this is maybe my voice. This is maybe how I want to sound. Um, like it's the first thing I really felt I was like hitting my stride in a certain respect. So I'd look back at it now and there's some real problems with it, but there's a lot of really interesting things. And, and like I say, um, it was just a moment where I feel like, uh, I kind of figured out who I was a little bit. So even though it was a failed project and, you know, again, I may go back to it. Um, but I learned a lot and, and that's, that's kind of almost a part of the lesson here. You have to kind of just keep doing things and finishing things because, so so the structure here was I wrote one, two, three. Um, basically, I'd written at that point three books and then I'd written five screenplays. Then I wrote something. Then I wrote something that I actually felt maybe started to represent who I was. And I don't think that's an atypical experience. I mean, hopefully you get there faster, <laughs> but... But you know, um, it really takes that level of time and that level of investment in your um, 
process and in your creative uh, work to even just start like that uh, to me is like i got to the starting gate with the sandman you know i had to write those three books and i had to write those five scripts to get to the starting gate it just felt me somehow i remember distinctly uh, being you know on christmas eve at my parents house um coming up with this really interesting idea for the script and i wrote it down and it's still one of the best scenes I've ever written, I think. Um, now, the last script I wrote before I published a book was a script called Dirk Dirksen versus the Demons from Mars. I was um, in the middle of my exams, uh, sorry, my, my essays, essay exams uh, in the PhD program. Um, kind of in the midst of you know completing all these big essays and studying for these exams and so on. This is massive period. We had all these massive deadlines, but I had this little stretch of time of about a week where I was kind of just waiting for things to happen. Like I forget the precise situation, but it was roughly a week where I basically had done all the prep I felt I really could do. I had maybe another week I could prep here, but fundamentally I was you know just sort of waiting for my exams uh, to come to me you know uh, they hadn't quite released them to me I had this week where normally you know you'd be cramming but I don't believe in cramming so one of the things I like to do before an exam is just like like the night before an exam I'll just like eat some fish and kind of relax and go to sleep like I feel at that point I've learned everything I'm going to learn the most important thing I can do is just relax a little bit and get myself away from the headspace of freaking out about it and let my kind of unconscious mind absorb and process a bit more. So I had about this week period, and I thought to myself, I wonder if I can write a screenplay, a feature-length screenplay in a week. Like, what would it take to just hammer it out? Like, how fast could I write a feature-length screenplay? And I thought to myself, okay, I'll write a script. It won't be good, but it'll be done. But I wrote a 64-page script in uh, in less than a week. Uh, so I think Dirk Dirksen was doing some Mars is an idea I'm going to return to. But, you know, technically, it's just something I wrote real quick, just literally just as, a, as for fun. Like, I wrote it. I was like, I just want to write something fun. I just want to get out of this, like, headspace of um, feeling like I have to do everything. Um, everything has to matter so much. And I just want to break, you know, and, uh, like, to do some work, but, like, do some fun work. Kind of what the three-day novel project was for me and Ryan. You know, we just going to do something fun, you know, see how we like it. Um, so there you have it, you know, my failed projects list, eight screenplays, seven books, all completed before I published my first book. And, you know, s some of that work I do plan to revisit or I hope to revisit, I think, you know, could go somewhere. Most of it I think is just dead, you know, either because I don't own it, you know, <laughs> like I just... Um, maybe would revisit it if I had, you know, some hope that uh, I could, or just because you know I've just soured on the idea, or just you know, just it's, it wasn't my idea in a sense of like, it just was a thing I was doing, and like I'd come up with the idea, but it just wasn't really. I know it's not my voice. Uh, I was just kind of, you know, doing things and learning, being who I was. I don't know if this. Uh, the, the message from here to me is you just have to be willing to do things and you have to be willing to fail and you have to understand that you know the failure is 
it's part of the process and it's important because you, nothing's really a true failure if you're completing things uh, it, it's not really true failures because you're developing you're learning you're getting a clear sense of who you are you're getting a, a better filter for what ideas are your ideas you know what's going to work for you and you're also building just the muscle the discipline you know you're kind of learning that you can do things a lot of the writing process is figuring out um, to be a little less precious about everything you work on um, and, and starting to see that you can actually do things like when I'm stuck on a book right now and I just it just feels hard and it feels like a slog um, one thing I can do is you know push through anyway uh, because I know that I can do it like it feels like, like it sucks and I suck and like I'm never going to get anywhere with this and it's just not going to go well and I just feel like uh why am I doing this I just can't I'm a loser you know <laughs> I'm never going to succeed at this well it's easy to feel that way and it's even easier I think to quit so you sort of have to practice not quitting you know a lot of what you do as a writer is prevent your own self-sabotage and kind of learn ways to just keep going um which kind of brings the question what keeps you going like what keep kept me writing towards trying to have a book out you know i've written seven books why not just quit i ran eight scripts why not give up writing scripts it would seem like a logical idea and not even a bad idea in many ways if you're you know if you're doing that much work and not not really getting anywhere like the stuff the scripts aren't getting produced um the books aren't getting published you know why keep doing it what kept me going well that's a different uh it's gonna be a different answer for everybody you know it's gonna be a difficult question for everyone for each person to answer uh what kept me going fundamentally was just the love of the process and i think that's something you really have to um try to hang on to because and it can be hard when you start to get published you know this is the thing that actually starts to become harder when you get published um, it's easy to get caught up in the rewards or the lack of rewards and to think about um, the praise or the damnation or the criticism that you get it's easy to kind of care about things like an award if you win an award or you don't win an award um, it's easy to get wrapped up in that sort of idea in the reception of the work it's easy to lose sight of uh, that the important thing is the work there, there's a you know off-quoted um, passages in the Bhagavad Gita that uh, you have the rights to your labor but not the fruits of your labor and I think um, uh, you know i can't remember the precise context i don't know that might be quoted out of context but i think that concept is very uh, powerful like the idea that you really have to fundamentally um try to get your ego out of the way a little bit and remember that it's not about you and about whether you're succeeding or not it's about doing the work you know that's your job is to do this work like i always had that attitude um and that attitude has kept me going and it has kept me um you know stubbornly uh moving ahead even when i've actually 
been pushed backwards, you know, either because, you know, the reception wasn't what I wanted or because my life circumstances were difficult. Um, the thing that always kept me going was the idea that this is my job, um, whether I'm getting money or not, um, or it's my sort of duty in a weird way. You know, I think that attitude has helped me. Um, and I just also had faith that I would get better. Like I could see myself getting better. If you're not completing things, you don't see yourself getting better. And so you have to kind of just keep completing things. Like, like by the time I wrote Sam, again, when I wrote Sam and I saw that um, script was done, I knew there were problems with it, but I could look at it and think, wow, this is miles away from Pocket Monkey. You know, like I could really just see the development through there. When we had this visual sort of opening for Samurai on the 47th, you know, I, again, I could see that that was a better opening than all the other openings that we had had. And the more you finish things, even if they're bad, even if they don't go anywhere, um, you're just building that muscle, you're getting better at finishing things, you're improving as a writer, but most importantly, you're not quitting. And it's really important uh, to weather failure and to even um, court it or uh, embrace it in a certain sense. Because eventually, you know, if you just keep going, uh, you'll get to where you want to go. But you have to keep going and, you know, it may take you longer than you hope. Thanks so much uh, for listening. Um, I hope this has been, you know, interesting to you. It's kind of a weird idea, but I thought, you know, some people might enjoy it or at least get something out of it. Um, I hope that uh, you, there's not a whole lot to put in the show notes here, but I will throw some stuff in the show notes at jonathanball.com slash six. So it's jonathanball.com slash six. You can get more information about my failed projects and you can, uh, some of which will be real projects in the future, like I say. Uh, go to thecrowmurders.com or anywhere on my website uh, to sign out for my newsletter. Then you'll hear all about, uh, you'll you get all sorts of tips and tricks and lots of uh, you know free material. But you'll also you know, be the first to hear about some of my, um, you know, some of these projects as they get revived. Uh, and, you know, when they stay dead, you'll get to appreciate that too. Uh, have a great week and keep writing the wrong way.